0: Hey, Tara. (laughs) Hey, Janny. He cracks me up when people call you Tara. Okay, whatever. Were you named after, like, the the Gone with the Wind House? No, I'm
1: named after the Seat of
0: Kings in Ireland.
1: (laughs) Oi. (laughs) Oi. Well.
0: Is that that Gaelic? (laughs) Oi. 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 Tara, baby. Johnny, honey. Today. This week it is politics, politics, politics because we have South Carolina coming up mm-hmm. and Super Dupa Tuesday. So
1: I think every Tuesday is super because I'm our here. podcast oh, drops.
0: <laughs> it's not because of me. It's because our no. Podcast. no. Um, but so in in light of that, mm-hmm. we're so smart. We decided we would invite a incredibly influential, and intelligent, and brilliant. I guess political. Act, how do we describe our guest? Just super smart. <laughs> super smart. And what I like is that you
1: said we're super smart. Mm-mm. Well, you are, mm. but I'm just along for the ride. And this guy makes me feel a little stupid.
0: <laughs> uh, his name is Michael Skolnick. And he is, um, I would say, the linchpin to a lot of people that are in the entertainment industry and in, in sports Uh, field. Uh, He connects activists with policy and with politicians. And if you look at his Twitter feed, like everyone who is of interest to us anyway, follows him. So um, I am super excited to see what he has to say about our politics right now because we are in the thick of it. We are. And if
1: anybody can help us, it's Michael Skolnick.
0: And maybe make us feel a little less freaked out because you know, with the indecision happening, with all the sort of votes going in so many different directions in the Democratic Party. And isn't it funny? That's what we need right now. We need to not feel freaked out. We need to, like, center ourselves and be like, we're all good. And I think he's going to maybe provide that for us, I hope. And I can't wait. And also, we're, we're, we're doing our first call-in. We're calling New York. <gasps> I know. <sighs> it's... My hometown.
1: Oh. I know. I could sing if you want. I could sing a song about it's New York. It's a- up. To you. Okay. No. I said I could, not you. Oh. Okay. Anyway, um, yes, it's very exciting to be with our, our technology. Who says you can't teach an old bitch new tricks? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, that's exactly it.
0: All right. Well, um, I'm gonna like get the phone out. Not true. We're going to use an app for this, but it sounds funnier if I'm like,
1: dialing New York. Hi, Michael. Do you remember when you used Oh, no. One eighty. Are you too young to remember having to use an operator to call for long distance?
0: Honey. Okay. How dare you? No, how dare Is my you, bo- sir? Is my Botox <laughs> fading? Well. <laughs> that you think I'm no. in the old, like. Uh... Well,
1: I do. You're, you're, you're younger than springtime to me. Oh, well. Yeah. It's all relative. Um, Let's stop talking to each other and get Michael I'm
0: going to do a little break And when we come back we'll it ding Michael That's so exciting Alright, we'll be back This being our first phone interview We did not nail the sound But don't worry, you'll get used to it So stick with it because it's one of my favorite episodes Enjoy Hey everyone, we are on the line With Michael Skolnick from New York Hey Michael Hello How's it going? I'm doing great. How are you both? We're doing great. So, Michael, New York Times calls you an activist, entrepreneur, and storyteller. That's a lot of things.
2: <laughs> do you believe in New York Times.
0: Uh well, yeah. Every once in a while. So I believe Michael's it. saying
1: it's fake news. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um what a what a great life journey you've had, huh? I mean, you were just a regular artist like the two of us, and then you became an important person. How how did that happen? <laughs> oh, that's, that's
2: very kind of you. Um, I, I think I'm only important to my child. Uh, but I, um, you know, it's funny. I was I was recently in a meeting with a bunch of very very smart people, and we all went around the room and and discussed, you know, sort of our jobs, and somehow some way, someone started with what school they went to and what degree they had. And it was Harvard and Yale and law degrees and all kinds of really smart things. And it got to me and I said, I went to UCLA and I have a theater degree. And
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what is that? <laughs> They're like, can, can you
2: leave the room now? Uh,
0: so that's hilarious you know harvard doesn't even have a theater you can't get a theater degree in harvard you have to go to the art theater next door that so true. They, they think it's true it's too low class
2: <laughs> so i i came up with incredible parents who were radical who were artistic who were creative and just really encouraged me to you know be the person i wanted to be in the world and um, that was a, a complicated time in the eighties and nineties when um, things seemed to be going okay, but underneath the surface things were really fucked up. And and, and I you know, and, and and luckily I just you know, and I can, you know, talk about it in length, but you know, through privilege and white my my white privilege and male privilege and growing up in New York I just had, you know, a lot of opportunities to, to, to do what I loved and my parents were incredibly supportive of it. So I started working in the theater at a very young age for a Broadway producer um, named Maria Dia, who was a lifelong mentor and, you know, started seeing that, you know, the, 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 the at that time, what was called the gay rights movement and, you know, the AIDS and HIV movement in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was deeply in, involved in that. And Upstairs from our office was Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. And I was around all these amazing activists and you know, who were fighting to end this horrible epidemic that was, you know, killing so many, you know, people of the LGBTQ community and then obviously many others. Um, And my parents were, my father was in Chicago in 68. My mother rode in the back of the bus in the 60s in the South in solidarity with black people. And so the race stuff was important to me as a young person, you know, to really understanding what race was and how I, you know, um, Came into my own identity as a white, you know, young person, and then I went to theater school and 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 learned, you know, the skill set of how to tell, you know, I had hope good stories and and ended up making films for many years. And I was off the races.
0: Wow, and you know, it is storytelling, right? Because I, I I started finding politics in my 30s while I was kind of my career was kind of dying as an actor, and I I became so in in, in you know sort of excited by the idea that you could tell these you could tell a story and get people to persuade them to a vote right to like an ideology as well so it makes total sense to me that that that's how you ended up where you are do you still make films
2: uh, no I, I i executive produce some things and and put my name on things that i'm passionate about at some point i will probably go back to that world in in my life i really enjoyed making films and i directed films and produced films for Thirteen years and, and loved it, um, but it was just it was a little too slow for me. The process was a little too yeah. slow, and I you know with the with the advent of the internet and social media and information, you know just whizzing by us in real time. I want to be part of that, and so I, I left the film business uh, when President Obama
0: was elected in two thousand and eight. Great, and now you and your wife have a company with a, with other partners, right? We do.
2: We um, we created a. a a creative agency. We felt that there was a space, a number of years ago, that there was a space um, that needed to be filled. That was, you know, doing really, really uh, critical work around, you know, social impact, um, and that ad agencies and that sort of, you know, Madison Avenue and wasn't able to figure out. And mm-hmm. um, we ended up making it a workers' own cooperatives. So I'm actually giving the company away to the workers over the course of seven years. Uh, as a way to really build equity amongst women and people of color in particular, really wanting to reimagine capitalism, knowing that capitalism has, has worked really well for me as a white man in this world and was sort of built, well, not sort of, but was built you know, for me to succeed and, and wanting to uh, build a company that really invested in women and people of color and leadership and ownership. And we've built this amazing small little boutique creative agency that has 25 people and no investment and no debt and we just do shit we believe in and we don't take on anything that you know we don't believe in and, and that has you know given us a chance to to really work on projects that are deeply rooted in a value system of compassion and authenticity and equity and that we stick to it and uh we're honored like right, humbled to work the things we get to work on every day but it's um you know it's, it's a challenge when when the model in the business world is just like to build a company, sell a company, build a company, sell a company, build a company. And you don't build, you know, you don't build loyalty. You don't build investment. and You don't build, um, you know, real, you know, pathways to leadership for people when you're constantly just trying to flip things in the, in the venture capital sort of mentality. So we have really um, doubled down on building a company that we think is healthy and, 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 and truthful, right. To
0: what we want it to be. That's so exciting.
1: That's incredible. Um, where do I send my resume? My is <laughs> still there. In college, we are still there. <laughs> um, <laughs> um There should be more of you. There. That's that's incredible. Can we go back for one second? You said you kind of left the industry once Obama was was uh, became president. What happened? What was what made you? Know,
2: you? I, I had a I had a three-picture deal at Universal Studios. I had a phenomenal set of agents at William Morris Endeavor. Ryan Grazer was producing and Imagine was producing my first film um, in, wow. in the studio system. And I was, you know, I was a young kid in Hollywood that people liked. And I was making films that I think people respected. I think I was a good filmmaker. I don't think I was a great filmmaker. And I, a lot of my friends coming up that I saw... Um, were really, really good. And many of them were women or people of color. And just like, we're, you know, now we're making the best films of our time. And, but then just we're not getting Mm -hmm. the same chances that I was getting. And I was constantly in these rooms where people like, oh, we love your work and you're close enough. Right. And like, you're, you're close enough to the real thing. And nobody really went to hire the real thing. Right. And we see that now, right. It's it's still a challenge in, in, in the studio system. Right. Of hiring women and hiring people of color and Um, And so I, um, you know, speaking of storytelling, I I often say that, you know, when Barack Obama gave his speech at the DNC in Boston in 2004, it would be racist uh, to say that he was articulate uh, or that he spoke well, um, (laughs) because what were your expectations of a black person in front of that kind of audience? Uh, What really he was and what he is, is an incredible storyteller, and he got up on Yes. and told his story to the world and it resonated, right? It resonated with this, you know, young mixed race man who was the grandchild of farmers from Kansas and and only in America could the story happen, which which is which was his message. And he gave such a great story that night um that you know put him on a pathway to his presidency. And when he was elected president, I, I didn't know I didn't work in the campaign. I didn't volunteer I didn't knock on doors I you know I was just a, a regular old supporter who believed in him and the night before the inauguration my brother lives in Washington and me and Paula and my best friend from college and um, we all went to Washington for the inauguration and we you know, left my brother's house. We actually went to, I think wabito had a Stevie Wonder party the night before. Stevie didn't show up, but it was all Stevie Wonder music. And we stayed at that party at two in the morning and then went to my brother's house till three, and, you know, didn't go to sleep, and then went out to the lawn of the mall at 3.30 in the morning with a piece of cardboard because it was negative 84 degrees outside and you know, had <laughs> and some boiled eggs, and, you know, and, and lied on the mall as close as you could get to the, to the capital without a ticket. And we didn't know anybody. And we, we watched this man give his inauguration speech. And I thought, shit, like, I I got to be part of that. And I don't know what mm-hmm. part of that meant. Um, I don't know uh, how I had to be part of that. But I wanted to be part of that energy. And I, I thought the film business, for me at least, and I don't say this in any judgment for those who are still in it, but for me, it was just felt a little selfish to, like, focus on the stories that I wanted to tell and, and spend seven years working on one script or one film and, And just because I felt that film was important or that story was important. And this internet thing was happening and it was just fast. And everything was, you know, Barack Obama tweeted 14 times during the 2008 presidential campaign. In 2012, he was 14 times a day. And now, you know, with Trump, you get 14 times an hour. Uh, So the amount of information that we were receiving was, was fast then and now it's even faster and I just felt like I should participate in that. And young people were finding this moment of hope and 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 belief in a country that, um, for far too long, uh, was really painful for a lot of people. And so I jumped on and just felt I wanted to support whatever he was doing. And and spent eight years, you know, on the outside, but you know, working very closely with the White House and with the President on many of his initiatives. Um, and which was, which was very fulfilling.
0: I wanna ask you about where we are right now. I, I feel like our party has lost the message somehow. Like I feel like Trump managed to, to to simplify what the message was for him and his people, you know, make America great. And I feel like we're at a loss of a message somehow. Would you, do you think that's true or, or am I imagining that?
2: So I think it's true. But I would say that when Charlottesville happened and Heather Heyer was killed uh, what a year and a half ago, I really was trying to understand what the fuck is happening in this country. And are we in a civil war? Is it a cold civil war? Are we afraid to say that we're in a civil war because it's too painful to like, think, or it's not close, it it doesn't resemble what, you know, 1863 looked like in America, so it couldn't be that. But I was trying to really understand, like, how how do we explain to our children what's happening? And how do you explain that someone's killed at a protest because of hate, or neo-Nazism, or white supremacy? Or how do you explain someone goes into a Walmart and kills 20-plus Latinos because of hate and I really was trying to understand like, what is happening in this country and how Donald Trump um, uses his understanding of what is happening in this country to his benefit uh, and to his consolidation of power. And what I came up with was that I think this country is at a crossroads, one particular reason, because the racial demographic of our country is shifting for the first time in the history of our nation to people of color being a majority of the country, which has never happened before. And so white people, the anxiety of white people, not just Republicans, but a lot of white people on all sides of the political aisle, the anxiety of white people, what is going to happen to them uh, is high. And I came to this idea that this country is in tension, between legacy and disruption and legacy being white supremacy, disruption being black lives matter, legacy being Mm -hmm. the old auto industries and the manufacturing industries of the fifties, sixties, and seventies and disruption being Silicon Valley and and tech legacy being these old foundations that have famous people or rich people or families names on them for a hundred years and disruption being GoFundMe pages and people raising money, you know, right. overnight. And, and, and Trump, interestingly, lives in both, right? Trump lives in this, yeah. this legacy of white supremacy and white nationalism and consolidation of white power, economic power, but then lives in the disruption of understanding how to communicate in a 21st or 2020 way um, that undermines the media or undermines, you know, the, the, the credited messengers of the past and so he, in, in, his, in his artfulness, uh, has been able to straddle both sides. And in that speech, when he says um, that, you know, there are good people on both sides, I was like, shit, this, mm. this is his ideology. And then on top of that, if if you don't, you know, Dave Chappelle, in, in, in his Inside the Actor Studio speech, um, after he sort of came back um, from South Africa uh, said something really uh, amazing and, and, and we should we we should go back and hear it when he said, when you call someone crazy, you're dismissive and it's, and then you write that person off and they were doing that to Chappelle, right, when Chappelle, you know, said no to Comedy Central and $55 million deal. And right. if you call Trump crazy, you just dismiss him, you write him off. And so I've really tried to understand Trump and said, well, what is Trump's ideology? It's pretty simple. It's protectionism. And so Make America Great is about protecting um, something of the past that particularly speaks to white people. The wall is about protectionism, the Muslim ban about protectionism, China terrorists about protectionism, the, the, the killing of, of Soleimani about protectionism. It's, it, it, you may not agree with it. It may seem irrational. It may seem chaotic. But ultimately, it's about protectionism. And so on the Democratic side, where I think the message has been lost is that I think American people in general don't think the Democrats are going to protect them or only protect a certain kind of person. Uh, And in Mm -hmm. that, um, there's a large percentage of Americans and predominantly men, because men at this moment have a lot of anxiety, uh, and predominantly white men, right? (laughs) That they don't feel protected. And Donald Trump, in the most weird way, has yep. gotten a message to them that I will protect you, and he could care less about them. In in, in the in in the reality, right. he could care less about them, but he's been able to create a message—not just make America great again, but all of his sort of actions and messaging around protectionism—that really, really resonates with people, and it doesn't just resonate with the racist. It resonates with the one who voted for Obama twice, um, and who felt Obama could right. protect them right? Obama had a certain level of that of that sports, locker room, I got you, like, you know, one team mentality uh, that spoke to a lot of, you know, especially men, um, that he was able to sort of um, bypass maybe some of their racial uh, blind spots and, and, and they would vote for him. So I don't think this is so simple as saying, now, sure, Fifteen percent of Trump supporters, you know, it's like going to a Klan rally. Like those people are super racist and really, really, really deeply rooted in hate. That's about fifteen percent. The rest of the eighty-five percent um, have some level, right? Have some anxiety around race and want to feel like they're protected and that you know it's going to be a little bit easier for them. Um, so take care of me first. But you know, for most of them, I think they they are nervous about what is to come. And the Democrats have not um, created a great vision that America can still be a country that all the population uh, can thrive and not just a few. And that is um, a very, very hard you know, sort of uh, thread or needle, whatever that saying is, needle to thread or thread to needle um, to do because the population has become so diverse. That was a lot,
0: but I hope that makes sense. No, that's no. We're gonna take a little break now and and sort of digest that, and then and then go into a secondary question on this topic because it's really you have broken it down better than I've ever heard Seriously, anyone. Seriously,
1: <laughs> Michael, my mouth was open. I was like, "Oh my God, he's right." Remember um, theater major? Yeah. So whenever I had-
0: all right, uh, I love it. All right, we're gonna come we're, right back and, and talk after to we you. do,
1: we're yeah. gonna do some trust exercises. <laughs> yeah, right. Michael. We'll be right back. Hi, we're back with Michael Skolnick and uh, that last section was absolutely, I literally was sitting here going, that is exactly
0: what Trump does. And I've never heard anyone quite describe it so specifically, Michael. I I really appreciate that breakdown. I I have a kind of a a question that kind of piggybacks on what we were talking about earlier. If we haven't found a message yet, which it seems clear, a, a message to counteract what's happening with the Trumpism of it all. How what the fuck are we going to do? I mean, we're right now in the middle of primary. And, you know, by the time this airs, some of it will have shaken out. But do you think the Democrats can even unify? It feels so fractured, right? Well,
2: it does. But also remember, the Republicans were saying the same thing in 2016, um, which is interesting, right? So, So Bernie has identified the same problems that Trump has identified. And that right. the billionaires, the, the trade wars, you know the, the little guy is getting fucked. And Bernie believes that Trump could care less, but says it, right? So the, so there's a difference there's a difference in, in, in their moral m- morality, um, but their messaging is pretty similar. Biden surprisingly mm-hmm. has the message, and I'm not exactly sure what happened to his campaign. it feels like um, there was some, inevitability sort of mentality in the campaign and then when it wasn't happening anger sort of set in and they run like a more angry campaign which i was surprised right because biden's not we never thought of uncle joe in that way but if you know these clips you're seeing online um it comes that way so then what happens is you have and those both those guys you know speak the language of protectionism and elizabeth does too she's trying her hardest to get there but she speaks that language the rest of them don't really do that but so it's interesting is you've got a guy like Pete Buttigieg or Bloomberg um, or Klobuchar and they speak the language of we are going to settle this thing down and I and that's sort of the Jeb Bush the Marco Rubio like that was the 2016 like you know we are moderates we're going to settle this thing down after Obama we're going to like you know make this thing right here comes Trump in 2016 and he wants to blow the whole thing up which is similar to Bernie right he wants to like Mm-hmm. the party doesn't work mm-hmm. the system doesn't work this whole thing is a fraud everyone is 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 out to get you so it would be very interesting interesting to see what happens with the democrats as they progress because there is certainly a large fraction of the party and of the party elites that want to settle this thing down and then there is this energy coming from young people in particular who have begun to really understand that this whole system does not work for anybody and it has to be you know sort of blown up in a sense and that is again legacy versus disruption there is a in, in, the, in the republican side the disruptor won trump won and but he did it uh with a with great risk ultimately because he is so much better as a communicator than the rest of his competitors The Republican Party had to sort of like, you know, bite their tongue and and follow along. If Trump wasn't that good, I think you would have much more internal fighting than we see now. I don't know on the Democratic side if you have someone who can unify because of their ability to message or their ability to sort of, you know, beat the other opponent. So I I think this thing probably comes down to a pretty bitter fight uh, and deep into the summer, maybe even to a brokered convention, which... Which, frankly, I don't know is a bad thing. I don't know if we have to have a really, really tough competitive battle to come out of it, not necessarily unified, but come out of it with um, a clear winner. Uh, And and that clear winner may not turn everybody out, but that clear winner at least will have the momentum to go into the general and may piss some people off, and I think that's okay I think as Democrats, we far too often don't want to piss anybody off. And certainly Trump wants to piss everybody off. And that's worked for him but Obama the same way. Right? Obama right. didn't want to make friends, didn't want to piss a lot of people off. That was his ideology, instead of bringing people together and working together. So I'm, I'm not necessarily that scared about a tough fight. Uh, what I am worried about is a guy like Bloomberg, with all the money in the world, um, being able to sort of, you know, buy his way uh, into, you know,
0: swoop in. Yeah, just that's that's not healthy for our democracy. I so agree with that. And and, uh, you know, I'll just say about the broker convention. But my biggest fear of that is if let's say Bernie is just a few hundred away, you know, and he's denied the nomination, you you really are risking a huge faction of his supporters just not showing up. Right. Right. I don't know. I mean, it depends how, how close the top two or three are when we get to the convention, don't you think?
2: I mean, you go you, you probably go back to 68 and we lose in 68. Right. So and it broke. My father right. was there. The kids were pissed off. They, they they protested in the park. The police showed up. Kids got arrested and then they didn't show up in the election. they were like, fuck it. You know, we're not doing this. And then, you know, Nixon wins right. and we lose. Um, so I don't right. um, I don't, that could certainly be an outcome.
0: Right.
1: Okay. Um, I want to go back for one second because you keep talking about uh, uh, Trump's communication. And I I totally agree with you that he sends out a message. But I'm always uh, fascinated with the fact that this man blatantly lies every day. And nobody ever – certainly not the GOP – nobody ever calls him on it. I mean, yes, we do have the occasional newscaster – but how is that communicating? He's blatantly lying. Yeah, he plays vicious, right? He he plays he plays absolute. Yeah.
0: Plays
2: absolute vicious. It is sort of the wannabe mob mentality um, that he thinks he grew up in in New York, and that he thinks he was a part of. Giuliani the same way, right? Giuliani thinks even though he beat the mob, he thinks he's part of the mob, and you know th- these guys play like they you know are part of a mob, um, and so Trump plays. And they are, they right? are. <laughs> so, so Trump plays
0: vicious. Yeah, the problem
2: Republicans have is that they know that this is the this is the last hurrah, and so oftentimes, you know, I think we bang our heads against the wall. Like, how does Susan Collins or like, how do you not, um, you know, how how do you not uh, fight this guy? Now, someone in, very senior in the White House during Obama years said to me. Uh, to, halfway through, this would give you some insight. Halfway through, um, we, we got into a big argument over, over criminal justice, and, and this person said to me, Michael, I know you progressives think we don't do enough on the things you all care about, and I know you sometimes don't like us, but we can't even get a federal judge approved, and we have you know the numbers, and you are, are asking us to do the impossibles oftentimes. And Mitch McConnell... And as 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 wicked as he is, um, but also quite smart, yeah. um, he had he he rolled the dice and he and he basically bet his the entire house. Um, he was all in on winning the presidency, and he held up every federal judge chip for the last year. Yeah. And of course, we know you know Merrick Garland was certainly held up in the Supreme Court, but that was the one we know about. And the if you look at Trump's Muslim ban, I said this very early on, in 16 or 17, the Muslim ban was actually, wasn't actually about Muslims. Although Trump is an Islamophobe and doesn't like Muslims, the Muslim ban was actually a little more sophisticated than just going after Muslims. It was a test of the courts to see which courts they could run, who would run that case in and what court they could, what district they could win in and how far they could go. And then following that, uh, they stack the courts. And so they have, they have stacked the yeah. courts for a generation. And if he wins again, we lose the Supreme Court, probably 7-2 for the next 40 years or 30 to 40 years. My child would grow up with a 7-2 Republican court. And you look, and that's where the power is held. And so the Republicans, yeah. while they know he's lying, while they know he plays vicious, while they know he's you know an inhumane person, They have made a deal with the devil and many people have made deals with devils um, over the course of their lifetime. And they made a deal with the devil. And the deal was you do, you do whatever you got to do to get elected. And that might be cheat, steal, lie, whatever it is. And we'll keep our power at least for their lifetime and maybe beyond if they can change the census. But yeah, they've made a deal and the deal, and it's ugly and it's a really, really ugly deal. It's hard for us to swallow it because we think we, we would hope for better of any politician. Um, and Trump, you know, Trump's made a deal for his, I'm um, not getting this at another time for another day, but all he wanted to do was be better than his daddy. And so his deal, and all, you know, the past four presidents all had issues with daddy and and, and Trump's issue was, I want to be bigger than daddy. And my name was higher on in, in a, in a building in Manhattan than daddy. And so Trump's deal is just as long as he is bigger and better than his daddy, he can go to sleep at night. Everything else he can care less about.
0: After the break, Michael talks about artists and their role in politics so michael what do you what do you think the role of people like Tara and I or people in Hollywood that you know I, I've been a surrogate a couple of times on campaigns. I do what I can. I go knock on doors, but there is a element of talent and creativity and access to com- to being a communicator out here and in, in New York as well in the entertainment industry that isn't successfully being tapped by the Democrats what what needs to happen there
2: when you walk into our office in New York uh, on the front of when you first walk in there's a quote that is sort of tattooed, if you will, um, on on the wall, in the waiting area. Hmm. And it says, artists are the gatekeepers of truth. We are civilization's most radical voice. And it's said by Paul Robeson, um, who I would argue um, might be the the greatest artist activist in American history. Uh, And and later, his mentee, Harry Belafonte, uh, who Blessed has become my mentor. Uh, Mr. Belafonte says later in his life that when uh, the mu- when the movement is strong, the music is strong, and uh, we are a reflection as artists of the movement. And so, you know, Jimmy Baldwin marched from Selma to Montgomery, and Bob Dylan sat with the SNCC kids in Mississippi, and Belafonte and and Mr. Sidney Portier, you know. Hopped on planes and went to Alabama and delivered money in cash because they didn't trust Western Union. Um, Peter Paul and Mary sang at the March on Washington. Joan Baez did as well, and, and Mahalia Jackson. And so the artists have always played a role uh, in movements, and they are um, they are the reflection. And so why? You know why are you know you all know this better than i do but this great cinema being made this great music being made this great theater being made this great art being made and part of it you know beyonce makes lemonade because of black lives matter now beyonce's always been a political artist she's had an all-female band she you know single ladies survivor these are political records um going back to destiny's child right that people don't even give her credit for but when she made lemonade it was like right. oh now beyonce's political you no know, beyonce was just a reflection of black lives matter so freedom <laughs> with kendrick lamar was you know a reflection of what was happening in the streets of Ferguson and and, and Baltimore and, and other places around the country that experienced you know horrible police violence. So you know the the hard part and is that sometimes artists just get used uh, to for fundraisers um, and to look pretty and to show up. Yeah. You obviously both look pretty, but you do the work and you don't just get used for the fundraisers and for the surrogates by doing this podcast in of itself. Is a gift that you're giving right to the artist community and to the greater world by you know bringing people on who are you know hopefully smarter than I am and share some things that are important. But you know what I fear of artists, and I work with so many of them, and many of them are dear old friends, um, is that we don't play safe. Artists are not supposed to. We always go first, right? And we risk our we risk our careers during McCarthyism. Yeah. Most many 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 of them right risk their careers. Darren McCarthyism, you know, and, and, and yeah. had to leave, including Paul Robeson, right, had to leave the country um, because right. their careers were threatened or ended. Yeah. Um, you know, we we say things that piss people off and we, you know, we create music that, you know, had to, you know, have hearings in front of Congress around should we put a label, a parental advisory sticker on two live crew records mm-hmm. because they want to speak their truth and have, and, and, and exercise their, you know, the right of the First Amendment. So I, I urge artists to, like, be radical in this moment and be and be loud and be vocal. And your career is probably going to be okay um, if you say what's on your heart. If your publicist calls you or your agent calls you or the studio calls, you know, I can't tell you how many studio executives that I've met over the past four or five years who ask me about artists or actors who have social media followings of five, 10, 15, whatever million people who say, I know, like that you know so-and-so. We would love to work with so-and-so. I said, well, that person is speaking their heart and speaking their mind. They say, we don't care. They have 15 million Instagram followers. We need that audience, right? So so this, the huh. studios and the TV yeah. networks, you know, they also are playing the game because they know they're getting free marketing and free promotion from the stars of their shows or their movies that have big social media followings. So they have a little bit more ability to speak, speak their mind and speak their heart. But, you know, I, I think this is the moment... Um, to really look deep inside, and and say, as as artists, as activists, um, you know, w- w- what do we want to be remembered for? I have a, one of my dearest friends played in the NFL for eleven years, and said to me when he was playing in the in the league, Mikey, like you know, don't put football player on my grave, you know. And and I and I and, I, and he he was a football player, Brendan I. was his name, who came out in favor of gay marriage. Um, in, in 2000, and whenever it was, 10 or 11, maybe a little bit later, uh, when he was in the Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens, and people were telling him, "Don't speak, don't talk. This is football players. Don't talk about you know LGBTQ people." He's like, "No, I'm talking about it." And he spoke loudly, and he wouldn't give up. And you know, in the LGBTQ community, he he's a grand marshal every other you know gay pride parade. You
0: know? <laughs> so, no, I know who he is. But, yeah, but he spoke his truth. Yeah. He
2: believed in it. You know, and he doesn't want to be as just a football player. He remembers his father and an activist and, a, and an ally. And I, I think, you know, careers are tricky and, 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 and acting and directing. I get it. It's hard. It's a hard business to maintain and to keep, you know, food in your table, your family's table and you get one job and all of a sudden shit, you're on a hit show and you think I can't, you know, I gotta like just do, do my job and go to work every day. And, and, and hopefully the show lasts four or five seasons, but in this moment, in this time, um, you know the Kerry Washingtons and the Gabbies and the and the, and the Americas and the trace Ellis Rosses and the folks who are speaking loudly—a lot of women, a lot of women of color—um, their careers are doing great, yep. and 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 they deserve it. They're talented, right they but they're also deeply, deeply committed to protecting the heart of our nation. And you know, I look at a young Yara Shahidi, who I've gotten to know since she was a teenager, and You know, now she's just turned 20 last week. And, you know, she's someone who as a Gen Z, you know, star and actor, she, you know, she's listening to podcasts and reading James Baldwin. And now she's at Harvard studying and she does the work and she loves her job. But she said to me, you know, years ago that I'm going to be who I am. And if that means I have to leave the film business, then I'll go to you know, become the president, uh, which she probably will one day. I I have no doubt that she has that chance, but, you know, she's been able to be herself and have an amazing career. And so I, I'm inspired by artists, Jonathan and Tara every day. I'm inspired, uh, but we have to keep pushing and and we have to support each other when, 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 when
1: people come to us. Well, I think that uh, I think for the first time, uh, I'm seeing so many more people becoming vocal about things that they foresee as deeply troubling in this country. Yeah. And I think that's exciting. I think I'm concerned about how we get the millennials to vote. Um, do you have any ideas on that? And I'm not just I, I just read a really disturbing report that says the LGBTQ is not voting as they should. Really? The numbers are so low. Hmm. So, Michael, do you have any ideas? What what should be our course of action? I do. I think
2: there, you know, when you look at cities across the country that have DA races and talk about criminal justice reform, Houston, Orlando, Philadelphia, we saw big turnout from young people in those kind of races. I think that we have to uh, look at places across the country where we can turn people out on things they really, really care about that may not be the presidential. And the presidential, we think they, they, they obviously will care. But there are local races, there are, there, you look at Lucy McBath in Georgia 6, um, whose son, you know, was murdered, um, Jordan Davis. And Lucy um, yeah. has a tough race, a re-election, she's a, she's a freshman. Uh, a fresh woman, uh, and she has a, a tough race coming up in her re-election, but she turned out a massive amount of young people in that district in Georgia 6, which didn't turn out in 2016. So I think there are people across the country, Orange County had huge, you know, flipped all four seats in Orange County. I think if I remember probably 45, 46, 48, 49 of California, those districts all flipped in, in, in Orange County, a huge turnout. In in young people, so I would look at you know places, you know Ilhan's district. If you look at um, Michigan and and Minnesota, you know Ilhan's district in Minnesota will matter um, for the state. And so, looking at her, you know, she'll turn out a record number of people. Rashida Talib's district in Michigan will turn out a record number of people because a lot of people care about her. Or a lot of people don't like her um, on both sides. I mean, on, 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 on both races, they they certainly can have right. folks who will vote against them, but I think they have more folks who will vote for them. So I would look at, you know, places yeah. where young people are really, really engaged. The gun issue certainly. March for Our Lives and the work they did was tremendous. And you look at this, you know, probably 10, 20 districts across the country that, um, you know, they flipped that were massive. You know, Virginia 10 and Barbara Comstock's, Comstock's district flipped. She was, you know, one of the biggest NRA supporters. Um, I think Hoffman and I want to say Colorado 10 right. flipped, uh, which was also, you know, one of the big NRA supporters. So when you look at places like that where young people care about immigration issues or care about, uh, gun issues. My brother said to me, he's much smarter than I am, but he said to me yesterday um, that he thinks this might come down to Arizona, the presidential, which is interesting. He thinks that we're going to win um, Michigan and Pennsylvania, but lose Wisconsin uh, and potentially Minnesota, which then um, Arizona. So Mark Kelly, who is Gabby Giffords' husband, is running for Senate. That's going to happen. Yes. He's raising yes. more money and. Than any, I think, senatorial candidate in the country with no super PACs and no corporate money. But you look at Arizona, right? You know, immigration issues, gun issues. He got a high visibility candidate, Martha McSally. Is not a good senator and has voted, you know, really poorly, you know, in her short term in the Senate. She's certainly no um, John McCain. And you know, if Mark, if Mark Kelly wins that race, you know, you might see Arizona flip. Um, so. I think it's not monolithic across the country um i think you'll see places that will have low voter turnout but i do think with young people they have a chance to really um vote at the highest rate they've ever voted at which probably you know break 65 70 percent if that's the case i believe strongly will win the presidency but um it can't be you you can't the strategy can't be monolithic for all young people you got to look at different districts in different locations and, and speak the language right. of, of what they care about in those districts
0: and those locations. Great. Um, well, this has been incredibly informative and exciting to talk to you, and I hope we get to do it again as we progress on our election journey here <laughs> next several months, because I feel like there's going to be a lot of things that come up, you know, in the next few months that we're going to want to chew on. But really appreciate you uh, getting on the phone with us. Um, it's been great.
1: Yeah, Michael, please come back and talk to us again because this has been fascinating and wonderful. Happily.
2: I am a fan of both of yours. So, so thank you for having me on. And, and whatever I can do, you know,
0: put me to work. All right, my, Michael, take care. Bye. Bye. Wow, Michael's smart. <laughs> <laughs> I feel stupid. <laughs> you know what's crazy is that in my 30s, and I think I, I mentioned a little bit in the interview, I transitioned into a bit of politics, mm-hmm. but he went all the way.
1: <laughs> he not he went all the way, but he... Uh, what I loved about him, if... You know there are times that you listen to someone talking about politics and you're like, oh, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. He broke it down into such... Uh, th- th- the, the description of Trump. It was poetry. It was poetry because mm-hmm. I literally went, oh, my God, that's exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. And that's the only time I've
0: ever heard that discussed. No one has ever ex- expressed it. Oh,
1: Michael. He's a
0: smarty. And it's interesting. He did it without – I mean, whenever I talk about Trump or Trump supporters, I get really nasty. No. He did it Is with, that true, honey? <laughs> yeah. Shut up. I hate you all. <laughs> um, he did it in a very um, – I don't know. Fair? In intelligent way. It was analytical. Yeah. Love him.
1: Yeah. I do hope we bring him back. Cause oh, we will.
0: Wow. If he wants to come back, he's got an open invitation. But we didn't get to play our game. We did him. not get to play our game. So, so I think we should play our game with each other. Okay. okay. You so go it's first. time for Little Did You Know. Little Did You Know about Tara and Jonathan. Okay. Okay. She's going first. Uh, first. Okay. So the question is,
1: Oh, shit.
0: <laughs> The question is, oh, shit. Oh. Uh, what do you strongly
1: suspect but have no proof of? Oh. I am going to say uh, an afterlife.
0: Oh, very good.
1: <laughs> well. No. That's the Catholic. That's the ex-Catholic coming no. out in me. But can't, no.
0: Can't beat the Catholic out of you. No,
1: but i uh, tell you something. My grandmother, who was a devout Catholic, when she was... When uh, probably two years before she passed away, she and I had this very deep discussion because she always wanted us to go to church Mm -hmm. and we just never did. And she said, uh, we had this discussion and I said something about the afterlife and she said, I don't believe in an afterlife. What? And I was like, you're not Catholic. (laughs) But yeah. How weird. Isn't that bizarre? That's like the cornerstone of Catholicism. Thank you.
0: Okay. Grandma. Grandma. All right, I'm pulling. Uh, Okay. What is something you will never do again? Well, I, I've said I will never be in a sweat lodge again because I had a—you don't know what that is? <laughs> no, I do—I know exactly what I it had is. a really bad sweat lodge experience in my 20s. May I
1: ask a question? Yeah. Were you high on something? No,
0: I was not high. I wasn't doing drugs at all. I was—I um, realized in the sweat lodge that I am a massive claustrophobic— And I basically lost my mind. I was invited to the sweat lodge by my actually my English teacher that I'm friends with, Mary Ellen. And because I was very spiritual in my 20s, and she thought, oh, you're going to love this. They're all going to love you. I'd just been to India. I was super cool. She invites me to the sweat lodge, and they close the flap. I don't know if you've ever ever been in one. But it's essentially a a tiny little space in the dark and extreme heat. And they sat me in the back, so I couldn't like escape. There was no out. There was no way out. And my claustrophobia kicked in within seconds. I was just gonna say how long. Seconds. I was. They closed the flap, and they and it was one, two, three, and I went. I need to get out. And they're like, No, no, no. It's fine. No, I need to get out. No, you're gonna be fine. No, I'm not fine. And I, I became hostile. I became vicious and hostile, and angry. And I had my hand on the stick that was holding the, the the the. the sort of structure up, and I said, "If you fuckers don't let me out, I am throwing this teepee over." <laughs> and I, I, uh, I, I think I will never do that again. You think? Well, I feel like I'm a now. That no, I, no. Now that I know more, I could handle it, but I don't think I need to. So there you go. The more you know. Why did you wrinkle that up? Because I was getting anxious when I was talking about Jesus. It. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Well, I guess so, but. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank
1: you so much. And thank you to our wonderful guest, Michael. Yes. That was, that was so insightful and I feel like 3% smarter. Me
0: too. And a little bit more hopeful.
1: That's so nice. Yeah. Yes. That is Only exactly. Only because I
0: know smart people like him right. are out there working it and thinking about how to change things. And You're that makes absolutely
1: me f- right. That makes me feel a little better. And let's all be a little bit more like Michael.
0: I'd like to be a lot more like Michael. I well, like to do a lot more uh, than I do. So. Well,
1: I think that's that's a really good thing for everybody and I think it makes you feel like you've got a little bit of control mm-hmm. over something. Yeah. So let's go out and let's be Michael. And let's be Michael and let's 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 yeah. Let's do it. All right. One more thing. Yes. Let's thank our guests for listening to Hollywood Caucus. And what, what should they do,
0: Johnny? I don't know. They come could, on, come on. They could download, they could subscribe, they could rate and they review us. That would be very helpful. Do they realize how helpful that is? I feel no, like... I said hopeful. I
1: went I went back. No, and helpful. Yeah. and ho-
0: helpful. Be helpful and hopeful. Rate, review, subscribe, and download us. And come back next Tuesday. Yeah. See you next Tuesday, Tara. Oh, shut up, Johnny. <laughs>